Hi everyone and welcome back to Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser. We're a couple episodes into the show now and I just want to thank everyone who's been listening in. I'd like to encourage people to send some feedback. The email address that's listed, go ahead and contact me. Let me know what you think of the show, make suggestions. Maybe you have an idea on something you'd like me to cover in a future episode. Remember that the show is also on Twitter at Ancient With. Today, we're going to be looking at athletics and sports in the ancient world and some very strange stories connected with that activity. Now, of course, today we still celebrate the Olympic Games as a massive international festival. And the Olympics, of course, are rooted in ancient Greece. They're not named after Mount Olympus like a lot of people think. They're named after a place called Olympia, which is down in the southern part of Greece called the Peloponnesus. And the games were always held at Olympia. They didn't travel around like the modern Olympics do. Now, the Olympics were actually just one of four major athletic festivals that the ancient Greeks celebrated, but they were definitely the most prestigious one. They were the one that was believed to have started first out of the four. Traditional date of 776 B.C. The story of how the games got started was often linked to Heracles, or Hercules as the Romans called him. So he was seen in many ways as the founder of these games. But the games were done in honor of the god Zeus, sky god, god of lightning and thunder, in many ways seen as king of the gods. And that's what you have to understand about Greek athletics is that it was tied to religious activity. Athletic festivals, sports festivals were also religious festivals. There was an important temple to Zeus located at Olympia. At one point in ancient Greek history, a massive statue of Zeus seated on a throne was constructed there. It was made completely out of gold and ivory, so it was called chryselephantine, coming from the words for those two materials. And it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's completely gone today. But the games involved a major animal sacrifice. This was called a hecatomb, where they would sacrifice 100 cattle. And the meat was actually distributed to the festival goers. Part of the carcasses were then burned as an offering to Zeus. And so there was this area called the Great Altar at Olympia, and it had all the leftover bones and ashes and melted animal fat and so forth from many, many years of holding the Olympics. So it must have been pretty nasty in terms of its odor and probably just thousands upon thousands of flies in the area and so on. But this is what they did to honor Zeus. They had a wide variety of events that occurred at the ancient Olympics. Chariot race, foot race, things that are still considered within the group of events called the pentathlon today. So they had the throwing of the discus, the throwing of the javelin. But it's the violent sports that drew the most attention. And this is where we come into talking about some specific athletes and the rather bizarre tales that are associated with them. Now, they had three main types of violent events or what could be called combat sports. These were wrestling, boxing, and something called the Pancratian. For wrestling, you had to defeat your opponent by knocking them down three times. They define falls as pretty much being knocked completely on your back or completely on your front. A lot of violent techniques seem to have been permitted, although in many cases they were officially not supposed to be used. People used them, and judges didn't always catch the offense. This included strangleholds, breaking the fingers of your opponents. 
Now, probably the most famous wrestler was named Milo. Milo was from a town called Croton in southern Italy. This was a Greek colony. There was a whole wave of movement, migration of Greek colonists very early in ancient Greek history. And there were a large number of Greek colonies established in southern Italy and also the island of Sicily. Milo of Croton had a 24-year career. Average life expectancy was about early 40s, we think, in ancient Greek times. But Milo began to win events starting at the Olympics that were held in the year 540 BC. Now, a lot of things about Milo seem kind of hard to accept, come across as hyperbole, incredibly huge in a physical sense. Every day he is said to have consumed 20 pounds of meat, 20 pounds of bread, and drank 18 pints of wine. He is said to have been able to burst a headband by inhaling and flexing the veins in his temples. He said to have carried a bull one day, all day long, and then near the end of the day, he killed it himself, cut it up, cooked it, and consumed the entire bull. And he also carried a bronze statue of himself around for most of a day until he found the proper place to set it. One of the later Roman writers, Pliny the Elder, said that the secret of his great strength was that every day he ate the gizzard stones of roosters. Roosters for cockfighting were seen as very brave, powerful, and vicious animals, so this was seen as the root of his power. In terms of his position back in Italy, it's kind of hard for us to figure out today. There's some indications that he was of a lower-class background, which every so often Olympic athletes were, but in general they were from the wealthy classes because you needed to have the leisure time to train for these events, and poor people had to work for a living, so generally they were not able to do that kind of thing. But there is a story that he led the people of his hometown of Croton in battle against the inhabitants of another nearby Greek colony called Sybaris. He was also linked in some accounts to the philosopher Pythagoras of Pythagorean theorem fame. The story of how he died is as strange as any story connected to his life. Apparently, he was always looking to impress people and to outdo his own feats of strength. And he saw a tree which had been somehow propped open, a wedge had been put in and had split the tree. And he shoved his hands inside there and pulled out the wedge. It seems what he was trying to do was split the tree himself, but he wasn't quite strong enough to do this. His hands became trapped within the trunk of the tree, and a pack of wolves came along, found him helpless, and devoured him. Another famous combat sport was boxing. There's a few accounts of bare-knuckle boxing, but in general what Greek boxers would do is they would wrap their knuckles and hands with thongs made of hardened leather. So this dried, tough leather would be something that would inflict very nasty wounds. Milo's counterpart in the boxing world was Theogenes. Theogenes was from the Greek island of Thassos in the northern Aegean. He said to have won at hundreds of different festivals, not just the Olympics. They had festivals at Delphi, at Nemea, at the Isthmus of Corinth. Theogenes once challenged all the guests at a banquet, anyone who wanted to fight him. Nobody took him up on the challenge. And after Theogenes died, the people of his hometown on Thassos put up a statue to him. And there's a tale that there was a guy from Thassos who really had it out for Theogenes. He had had a serious grudge against him, and he had never had a chance to really get revenge on Theogenes while the boxer was still alive. One day when no one was watching, this guy started to actually whip the statue. Then it toppled over, fell on this guy, and killed him. 
when the townspeople discovered the body and the toppled statue, they decided that something had to be done to dispel the curse of homicide. And strange as it may sound, in ancient Greece, they would have trials of animals or even inanimate objects that had killed people. So the statue of Diogenes was put on trial for murder. It was found guilty and it was carried out and dropped into the sea. So it was an idea of exile. So if Diogenes had been a living murderer, he would have been exiled for good. So it was thrown into the sea. But soon after that, everyone's crops on the island of Thassos started to fail. There was some kind of a blight. And that meant that starvation was a possibility. They consulted with an oracle, and the oracle told them, you've got to bring back all your exiles. So they tracked down every criminal that had been exiled from the island that was still alive and got them back. But then somebody remembered, hey, wait a minute. We also exiled the statue of the boxer Theogenes. So they had to sail back to the point where they had dropped it. Divers found it and raised it back up. And it was taken back onto dry land, put back in its original place. And lo and behold, the blight came to an end. Now, boxers did get killed in the ring. And it was actually seen in some ways as an honorable thing to die in a match. There was a boxer named Cleomedes from a little island in the Aegean called Astapalaya. At a boxing match in 496 BC, he killed his opponent with a blow that actually tore open the guy's rib cage. His opponent died. Cleomedes was fined by the judges, and also his win was disqualified. He sailed back for home, but his anger knew no bounds. He was just furious at this because he really felt like, even though he had killed the guy, that he had won that match fair and square. So his anger just built and built and built until he finally snapped. And he started going around town, smashing things, destroying things. There was a small building that had a group of children who were being instructed, a schoolhouse. And Cleomedes caused the roof of the schoolhouse to collapse in on these children and kill them all. Well, the citizens of Estopoli were now enraged at him, so they started to stone him. Stoning was actually a form of execution used in ancient Greece from time to time. It's not just something that appears in the Bible. Cleomedes fled from the people who were trying to stone him. He ran into a nearby temple and hid inside some kind of a container there, possibly a container for offerings, trying to seek sanctuary or asylum. When his pursuers got inside the temple, they looked everywhere for him. They opened up the box that it looked like he had actually climbed into, but he had disappeared. So again, an oracle was consulted, and the oracle said, whatever Cleomedes did, whatever crimes he committed, This is obviously a sign that he has become a god, so you need to do sacrifices to him and honor him. So believe it or not, he turned into a local god, despite having killed all those kids on the island. And there was a boxer named Demarcus, who is said to have become a werewolf for 10 years after he had attended a festival on a mountain called Mount Lycaon. This is also in southern Greece. It's an area of the Peloponnesus called Arcadia. And I've actually been to the top of Mount Lycaon. You get an amazing view of the countryside from there. But Mount Lycaon was also sacred to the god Zeus. So there was religious worship of Zeus done on that mountain, actually long before even the beginnings of organized Greek civilization. The Roman travel writer Pausanias said that if you entered the sacred precinct of the Temple of Zeus without some kind of authorization, if you weren't a priest of Zeus, you would not cast a shadow. And that was the sign that you actually should be sacrificed. So there are stories of human sacrifice connected to the festival on Mount Lycaon. And they would serve the meat of sacrificed animals to the festival goers, 
but some flesh from the person that had been sacrificed was mixed into one portion at random. The story is that whoever ate of that particular portion of food, since they had tasted human flesh, that brought down a curse on them for 10 years that they would take the form of a wolf. Now, the last of the violent sports connected to the Olympics and other festivals that we're looking at is the Pancration. The closest thing that you could compare the Pancratian to today would be mixed martial arts. It was sort of combined boxing and wrestling, and almost every single combat move was allowed. There were really only two things that were banned. You could not gouge out the eyes of your opponent, and you could not bite them. Everything else, including kicks to the groin and things like that, that was all permissible. There was an individual who had won many Pancration matches before the one where he died. This athlete's name was Arikian, and this was during the Olympics of 564 BC. His opponent had gotten him to the point where it looked like he was going to have to surrender. And this is how a boxing or a Pancration match would be decided. For boxing, either you would just be knocked unconscious or you could do something similar to what today would be called tapping out. You would hold up a finger and that was signaling to the judges, to your opponent, and to everyone who was a spectator that you were done. You were ceding to your opponent. While Arikian's opponent had gotten him in a hold that it looked like he just wasn't going to be able to get out of. The guy had done a scissors hole with his legs around Arikian's torso. And he also had a stranglehold around his throat. Arikian just wouldn't give in. He just kept struggling. Arikian's coach started to yell weird ideas of encouragement to him, telling him there would be better to die than to lose. His coach said, what a great thing to put on your tombstone, that you died at Olympia. Arikian looked like he was about to black out. He was losing oxygen. He was coming close to death. But then he twisted himself to the point where he was able to use his knee to injure his opponent. And the story is different in different authors. He either dislocated the other guy's toe or his ankle. That was enough to make his opponent tap out. But as soon as the guy's grip was released, it was obvious that Arikian had died. He had been asphyxiated. So he died, but he died undefeated. So as the author Philostratus puts it, he went to the land of the blessed covered with the very dust of the struggle. All the people competing in these events were male. Women were banned from the Olympics and these other festivals. Women couldn't compete because the games were done in the nude. This is a tradition that started at some point. We're not really sure exactly when or why it was done. There is a story of a woman who snuck into the Olympics, not to compete, but to watch her son compete. Her name was Kalipatira, and she had a number of sons that were famous athletes. So she dressed up as a male trainer. However, when her son won a match, she ran to him and it became obvious to everyone that the trainer was actually female. She would have been executed, but the officials running the games decided to spare her on account of the great athletic exploits of her sons. But they did pass a new rule that the trainers had to appear in the nude too, not just the contestants. We're going to turn to the Roman world next. Now, the gladiators are the really famous Roman athletes, but there were some more obscure aspects to Roman performance as well. Chariot races were very important entertainment in the Roman Empire. It does seem that the Romans learned about chariot racing by way of the Greeks or possibly the Etruscans and other ancient culture close to them in Italy. 
The main place in Rome where chariot races were held was something called the Circus Maximus. This area is still used today for concerts and other kinds of public gatherings. In general, the term circus was attached to the shows that would happen in places like this. The chair racing is not as famous in modern popular culture, although the different movie versions of Ben-Hur have popularized the concept. Now, for chair racing, we know that there were teams originally sponsored through investors, private enterprise. Charioteers themselves tended to be slaves, although a few of them were free. And for reasons not fully clear to us, certain colors became associated with them so that you had teams known by colors like the reds, the whites, the blues, and the greens. But this also became associated with factions of fans that would cheer on their particular charioteers or chariot teams and would sometimes get into fights with fans from the other teams. Now, this is something that is seen in modern sports today, too. And the one that's been linked with most closely is the modern concept of football or soccer hooliganism seen mainly over in Europe. They had lots of other shows too, including mime shows, pantomime. And believe it or not, mimes started riots too with their shows. You really have a hard time imagining this when you watch a mime today, that they could ever incite people to rioting and violence. But it got so bad at certain times that Roman emperors actually banned pantomime shows and exiled all the mimes from Rome. So the fans were as dedicated as any modern ones, possibly a little bit more, because Pliny the Elder, that same author I mentioned earlier, said that one famous charioteer for the red team in Rome had died and was being cremated, and this individual literally jumped onto the charioteer's funeral pyre so that he would burn to death and accompany his favorite charioteer into the afterlife. Now in Rome, the emperors themselves would sponsor chariot races and they were expected to attend them, the people, the populace of Rome, actually had a voice at these events. They could cheer the emperor. They could mock the emperor. Quite often, they got away with these things that they wouldn't be able to otherwise, although there are occasional stories of emperors losing their patience and going after people. But emperors were known to favor certain chariot colors and teams. Some emperors were major fans of the chariot races. Caligula is known to be one of them. Nero was another one. Caligula actually had races on the Vatican Hill. The area that is St. Peter's Square today was originally a racetrack. So the factions of fans really, really dedicated to their particular teams. The Roman physician and medical author Galen said that fans would go so far as to break into the stables to make sure that the horses are being cared for. They would pick up the horse's crap and smell it to make sure that the diet that the horses were getting was appropriate. The horses had names just like modern racing horses would. One funny one that I came across was mucosis, which means sniffles. And sometimes they would write out curse tablets, which are known from the Greek and Roman world. You would write, usually on a sheet of lead, a curse against someone. And then you would bury the curse tablet. There are stories of them sometimes being buried actually under the track But one curse tablet says, bind the horses whose names I entrust to you. Bring the charioteers of the other color to a bed of punishment. Now, eventually, the city of Constantinople, modern Istanbul in Turkey, became the second Rome. And as Rome itself began to fade away in political importance and the western half of the Roman Empire faded away and finally came to an end late in the 5th century A.D., Constantinople, to all intents and purposes, became the new Rome. 
Constantinople had its own version of the Circus Maximus called the Hippodrome, or horse track in Greek. It wasn't quite as big as the Circus Maximus. The Circus Maximus is estimated to have been able to accommodate between 150,000 and 200,000 spectators, so that dwarfs the Colosseum. The Hippodrome, eh, maybe about half that, about 100,000 people. And the same kind of things would happen at the Hippodrome as happened at the Circus Maximus in Rome. The emperors would appear, the public would express approval or disapproval. And the colors and the fan groups carried over to Constantinople also. Although by the time you get into the 6th century, the 500s AD, it seems that the blues and the greens became the predominant ones. And once again, emperors might favor one over the other. And the blues and greens were associated with the same kind of brawling and after-game violence as was seen in Rome. The authors who talk about the fan groups say that they would not only wear their particular color, but they would also do different kinds of costuming. Like the fans of the blues might dress up as barbarians called Huns. And then the green fans would come dressed as another barbarian group, the Goths. So it's almost like cosplaying, except that it contributed to knowing who your opponents were. Once the after-game brawl started and the fists started to fly, you would know friend from foe. Well, the most famous riot was one that caused major damage to the city of Constantinople itself and almost led to the downfall of one of the most famous of the Byzantine emperors, Justinian. This is the Nika riot, which happened in the year 532 AD. Seven men were found guilty of murder and they were due to be executed by hanging. So a scaffold was set up to hang all seven of them at once. But two of the seven men survived. The scaffold actually collapsed. Two of them, the ropes broke. The crowd watching the execution thought, hey, this is a sign from God. We're at a stage now where we're in Byzantine history and Christianity has triumphed over paganism. Christian emperors have put an end to gladiator shows, although the animal beast hunts and chariot racing continued for far longer. So the crowd decided God is sparing these two men. So they rushed forward, spirited them away, and they really wanted the emperor Justinian to pardon these two guys. Now, it turns out that one of the two survivors was from the blue faction and one was from the green faction. So the next day when Justinian was presiding over races in the Hippodrome, the crowd of both sides, both blue and green fans, started to chant that they wanted these two men pardoned. Well, Justinian would not answer. So a riot started during the races. And it was not confined to the Hippodrome because a crowd of combined blues and greens, for once, they've actually teamed up here. You know, they're starting to set fires to different buildings. They broke into the prison and set the two men and a whole other group of prisoners free. But they started to chant Nika, which in Greek means victory. And normally they would chant that for their team to win a chariot race. But now what they mean is victory over Justinian. So this is how the whole event gets its name of the Nika riot. They started to make all kinds of political demands now. They weren't satisfied with just the fact that they freed these two condemned men. They demanded that a number of unpopular imperial officials be fired. And the rioting went on for five days straight. Fires caused major damage to the city center. Justinian actually considered fleeing. But what finally put an end to the riot was when the rioters acclaimed a rival emperor, one of Justinian's relatives named Hippatius, who doesn't seem to actually have wanted to have this position offered to him, by the way. He was brought to the Hippodrome and he was acclaimed as emperor. And there's stories that there were actually some high-ranking nobles, some senators in Constantinople who were behind this. They didn't like Justinian too much. Justinian had finally gotten up the nerve to do something drastic. 
So troops were sent in led by his star general, Belisarius. He's famous for many military victories across the Mediterranean during Justinian's reign. Belisarius and his soldiers began to slaughter the people in the Hippodrome. The accounts say that by the time they were done, there were 30,000 dead. Justinian quickly restored order. He had his relative Hippodius executed. He had actually fired those officials that the crowd had made demands on, but he brought them back. He reinstated them in their old jobs. And one of the buildings that had burned down during the riot was the Church of Hagia Sophia, or Holy Wisdom. Justinian had that church rebuilt, and the rebuilt Hagia Sophia became one of really the wonders of the ancient world, not on the official list. It was a masterpiece, and it still stands today in Istanbul. The factions were never quite as powerful after this, but it wasn't the end of the story for them. They did continue. We hear about them for a few centuries afterwards. Thanks, everyone. I hope you enjoyed today's installment. Musical credits are Magical Gravitation and Sports Fanfare, both from royaltyfreemusic.com. Keep an eye out for the next episode of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser.